Well, Psalm 23, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Um, and unfortunately, as, as Mark referenced, uh, it's relegated often just to funerals, just sad times. Um, and I think many Christians think of it as sort of a very basic, very rudimentary chapter of the Bible, mainly for either new believers or for unbelievers. Uh, view it as something that's not very theologically deep. And really nothing could be further of the truth. Psalm 23 delves into the mysteries of God's sovereignty, to the goodness of God, even when we're in deep trials, and exhorts us through these vivid illustrations to trust in God as our shepherd. It's right for us to see Jesus in this passage. Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. Obviously, Yahweh is a triune God, but Jesus is the one who reveals the Father to us. Um, and so it's, it's just such a great exhortation to, to trust in Christ, even if it feels like we're walking through the valley of a death shadow. Our good shepherd is always leading us, um, even if we can't see him, even if we don't feel him. Well, just to introduce real quickly, any fans of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters? Kind of a, it's kind of a weird book. Got some fans in the back there. Um, it's a, if you've never heard of it, it's, it's kind of an odd little book in which Lewis writes as if he's a demon instructing a younger demon in how to properly tempt a human being. Wormwood is the, the demon that he's teaching. And this is what the primary demon says to this younger demon. You must often have wondered why the enemy, the enemy's God, because the demon is writing, why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and at any moment, but merely to override a human will as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for him useless. And so he leaves the creature to stand up on its own leg to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. And it is through such trough periods, much more than the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature that he wants it to be. Hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. To trust God in the sunshine when his blessings upon you is a good thing. To trust God as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death is a great thing that God calls us to. So that's what we're longing to do in, in this evening. Uh, we're going to divide up Psalm 23 into three reasons we can trust Yahweh, our shepherd. Three reasons we can trust Yahweh, our shepherds. First, he provides, then he guides, and then he plans. He provides, he guides, and he plans. Let's pray one more time just to ask for the Lord's help. Father, I know there are many of us walking through difficult situations in this very moment, and we need your spirit to minister to us through the word of God. Help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, as Mark has exhorted us, and just pray that you would minister and, and comfort us this evening, and 
Strengthen us to, to serve you with joy and with peace, knowing that you are in control of every detail in our lives. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, first we see in the first few verses that, that Yahweh is a shepherd who provides. He provides everything we need. Uh, he feeds us. Um, and, and David really emphasizes the fact that he provides the best for us, right? In this illustration of Yahweh being a shepherd and, and we being sheep, uh, right? I mean, the best thing that a sheep could possibly desire would be green pastures still waters, right? Exactly what the sheep needs. And the psalmist emphasizes this truth often, right? Psalm 84, no good thing does he withhold to those who walk uprightly. So David says, I lack nothing, uh, right? I, I'm not in want. That obviously in context doesn't mean that you're going to have a Ferrari and a pretty girlfriend, um, what we need and what we want are often two different sorts of things. It reminds me of Matthew 6, right? It's just, Seek first the kingdom of his righteousness, and all these things will be added to those as well. And often we want to put certain things that we want into those all these things, but the context is obviously clear that all those things are food and drink and shelter. Uh, God gives us exactly what we need. I think even in context, this is not a promise that a Christian can never starve. Christians do starve around the world, unfortunately. This is a, a promise that God is going to provide everything we need to do his will. Everything we need to please him and to obey him, we have. And so in these first three verses, David kind of lists three different ways that Yahweh provides uh, that he provides green pastures, he provides quiet waters, and a restored soul. First, those, those green pastures. It's the idea of the, that God is providing the best sustenance, just what the sheep needs. God meets all of our needs, not, not the scraps. God's giving us the best. Green pasture, the best diet for our growth. He's giving us quiet waters where the sheep is, is safe to drink. God is the fount of living water that quenches our soul's thirst, not some muddy, stagnant water. God gives his children his best. And then that final line, he restores my soul. And I think some people get confused as they're reading through Psalm 23 because they forget that we're in this illustration of shepherd and sheep. And so you get these phrases like restores my soul or walking on paths of righteousness in in the valley. And you sort of, sort of invert what's going on and think of yourself as a human walking on a righteous path or as a human having your soul restored. And you got to just stick with the illustration. You're a sheep. So what does it mean for a sheep? In, in Hebrew, is a nefesh kaya, is a, is a living soul. So what does it mean for a shepherd to restore the soul of this animal? Well, I think in the context, the, the point is just that, that the shepherd has led the sheep to these green pastures, given them the best food, led them to water, and sort of revived the sheep um, through all the wonderful things that he is providing. Um, and the question then for us is, is whether we believe that. Right? I mean, remember... This is David talking. David didn't have some really easy life. David went through a lot of very, very difficult trials. Um, there's an argument to be made as we get to the end of Psalm 23 that, that David is actually away from Jerusalem at this point, going through a significant trial. 
uh, maybe when Saul's pursuing him, maybe when, when Absalom is pursuing him. And yet he says, I lack nothing. He says, God's given me the best um, because he believes that God is sovereign because he believes that the shepherd is leading him the best way possible. And, and that's the question for us. That's, that's the rub when we go through pain, when we go through trials. Is God really on the throne? Do I trust that God is giving me what's best? Or do I want something else? And oftentimes the easiest way to find that out is just to, to search your heart for gratitude. Because if you actually believed that God was giving you the best, absolute best that he could do, then of course you'd be thankful. You'd be rejoicing. You're you're grumbling and complaining. Why? Because you don't think you're on the right path. You don't think he's giving you the best. Um, I've given an illustration a a few times of a child. We all remember when we were children, especially those of us who grew up in Orange County. I forget where where he was. Um, I was born in Torrance, so I'm I'm an L.A. boy too. But um, when you're a child and and, your family says you're going to go to Disneyland, Maybe think of yourself when you were like eight or nine years old, if you ever went to a theme park, and you're just like so excited, you're so ecstatic, like you can't sleep the night before. You're like, I want to tell all your friends, and you're jumping up and down because you think that the best possible thing that could happen to you tomorrow is to go to Disneyland. So the question is, why don't you rejoice like that when you're having surgery tomorrow? or when you're going through a trial tomorrow. And the answer is you don't rejoice because you don't think that God's giving you what's best. You don't think Romans 8.28 is true. You don't think that God does everything for the good of those who love him. You don't believe Romans 8.29, that God does everything for that good purpose of transforming you to the image of his son. You'd rather stay the sinner you are than to go through a trial to make you more like Jesus. Because your Disneyland is not being like Jesus. You'd rather live an easy life. You'd rather not go through trials. David said, God is giving me the best. Whatever I'm going through, that's the best. I trust that, that Jesus is my shepherd And maybe I don't see it because I'm a stupid sheep. (laughs) But I trust that Yahweh knows. Yahweh's wise. He knows what path I should be on. Well, second, as we transition here at the end of verse 3, not only does Yahweh provide the best for us, another part of his pastoring and shepherding us is that he always points us on the right path. He always leads us and guides us correctly. He never leads us astray, even and especially when it seems like he is. Yahweh points us on the right path, even though to us it might seem like the valley of death's shadow. Notice verse 3b, it says, He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And again, I think the point in the analogy of a shepherd and of sheep is, is, is not the idea that this is some morally righteous path, but rather that this is the right path. This is the correct path. A shepherd only leads his sheep on the best path to get to the green pasture. Right? And that's, that's a profound statement. 
that God only leads us on right paths. Because again, think about who's writing this. Think about the kind of trials that David is going through. And for him to say, Yahweh is my shepherd and he always leads me on the right path. Right? Do you trust that you're on the right path? Are you grateful to God for the path that he's taking you in? Right? Now, I'm not excusing your sin by speaking of the sovereignty of God this way. Sometimes we go through trials and pain as a result of our own foolish choices. But even in those cases, when we got on this path that's the valley of death's shadow, even in that moment, we can say with David, but but God is using even this. God is using even my sin. God is sovereign over Satan, over the demons, over me, over my bad choices. And he has me on this road because it's the road that's best for me to accomplish his purposes. It's the best path toward Christ's likeness for me. God is making me like Jesus, and he will do anything necessary to accomplish that purpose, even the pain that's in my path. And David is confident that that's going to happen because notice he says that that Yahweh is guiding him in these right paths for his name's sake, for the sake of the name of Yahweh. The shepherd's name, the shepherd's reputation is what's at stake here, right? There's no way that a shepherd would lead his sheep off of a cliff. He would be mocked if that was the case, right? Because if a sheep is lost, it's not the sheep's fault. If a sheep is lost, whose fault is it? It's the shepherd's fault because it was the shepherd's responsibility to pasture and keep those sheep. And that's impossible that this shepherd then could lose a sheep because he's leading us for his own name's sake for his own glory. And I know because I've struggled for many years with the sovereignty of God, struggling to to think that God was some selfish narcissist who did everything for his own glory, and I had to go through pain and suffering so that he could be praised. Remember that, that God's not some selfish narcissist like all the other false gods in the world worship in all every other false religion. Our God's a trinity. And when... When the Bible talks about God doing things for his own glory, we'll get into this a little bit tomorrow. The Trinity helps us sort out why that's not selfish because the Father created us. Why? The Father created us because he said, my son is so glorious. My son is so majestic, so beautiful. There needs to be millions and millions of voices praising his great name. And the son comes to earth. And he says, I don't, I'm not here for my own glory. I'm here because you need to see how wonderful my father is. And I'm going to reveal to you all his worth. And the spirit comes and dwells within us. And God pours out his love through the spirit so that we can love the father and the son and join into this inner Trinitarian love. And that God, yes, is glorified, but it's not this selfish thing that God wants. It's that, that God being love is so enraptured between the three members of the Trinity, that that love sort of just outpoured and overflowed into creating us so that we could join into that inner Trinitarian love. But the point is, is that this is not about you. You're not safe because you're important. You're safe because Yahweh's name is at stake. And Yahweh has promised to make you into the image of his son and he will accomplish his purpose. 
verse 4, probably the most famous verse of the psalm, maybe the second most famous verse in the whole Bible outside of John 3.16. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Right? The valley of, of death's shadow, that's, that's a path that is terrifying. That's a path that's frightening for the sheep. It's dark. He doesn't know where he's going. But David's confident here that even that valley of death's shadow is the right path to make it to the green pastures. Right? In fact, we, we must trust that if we are in that valley, if we're in that trial, it's because there is no other path available. Right? What kind of sick shepherd would lead his flock to the valley of death's shadow if there's another path shorter going through green pastures? I mean, what kind of terrible shepherd would do that? So we have confidence if we're in the valley of death's shadow, it's because it's the best path for us to be on. It's the best path to get us to our destination. And our destination in the Bible is always Christ-likeness. It's always to be like Christ, to radiate his worth in the world. And so the question once again is, do you trust that that's the case? Do you trust your shepherd? Do you trust that he's leading you and guiding you on the right path? Or do you doubt and complain and question? Because trusting God is really only about how you respond in the difficult times. Right? Faith is believing in the invisible. Right? If you can see God's goodness, that's not faith. Faith is a conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11. Faith is believing that God is here leading me, even when it seems like he's not. In fact, I mean, we call Hebrews 11 the, the hall of faith. It starts with that definition that faith is believing the invisible. But, but it ends with this statement, describing all of these heroes of our faith. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, and greeted them from afar, the idea is by faith, having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Right? They, they did not receive the promises. That's why they're great men of faith. Great faith is not getting what you want all the time. Oftentimes, it's the opposite. Right? If you ask yourself, who has more faith? The person who's told he has cancer and so he prays, one night, when he goes back the next day, doctors say, oh, we messed up. You don't have cancer. I mean, that's, that's wonderful. And we would praise God for his intervention there. But that doesn't require a ton of faith. What requires a ton of faith is the man, like the man we visited on Wednesday, man from Spanish ministry, named Raul Rangel. He was diagnosed with stomach cancer um, about a month ago. And in one month, cancer has just absolutely destroyed his body. He's lost almost 60 pounds. Um, and we show up to his living room on Wednesday, and he, for, what, 20 minutes, just was quoting the New Testament. And just with a smile on his face, he's got three kids in the house, his beautiful wife. And he's like, look, I mean, there's only three options for tonight, right? I mean, I can die or Jesus can come back, 
or he can heal me. And I'm, I'm, I'm good with any of the three. You know, Jesus is in control. He knows what's best. I, I trust he's going to take care of my family. I'm just like, you, you can see clearly how the Lord has used this month of his life to change him. Um, he's, he's a different man. I mean, I, I've known him for 20 years. He's a different man today than he was a year ago. Um, and I, I thought, man, here's a guy who believes this. Here's a guy who has worked through in his heart whether God is good and is sovereignly leading him and guiding him. And he's taken strength in the reality that, yes, Yahweh is a good shepherd. Yahweh has me on the right path. And it's worth it to become like Jesus, to go through whatever he decides is best for me. Right? That's what, what David says, right? I fear no evil. I fear no harm. Nothing can harm me. That doesn't mean I'm not going to go through pain. That means right, nothing can keep me from God's purposes. Nothing can come out me that's outside of God's plan, right? Because God is a perfect shepherd. And he says, his rod and staff, they comfort me, right? Because the one leading me is the omnipotent sovereign of the universe. The one leading us is the invictus. He's never lost a fight. No one can, can come against Yahweh, Yahweh of hosts. And so we're absolutely guaranteed that Yahweh's purposes will be accomplished because no one can thwart his plan, right? If you are a Christian, the only thing that can happen to you is sanctification, period. Because that's what God's doing in your life. God is omnipotent and he only permits what's good for me and good, according to Romans eight twenty nine, is to transform me into the image of his son. Now, you better believe that you will be thankful when you get to the new earth if you worked hard at your sanctification, like God commands us to, and you put to death your sin. But at the end of the day, every Christian necessarily will be sanctified, right? Because God is guiding and God is protecting well, we said there were three reasons. We've hit the first two. Now we'll get the last, that Yahweh is planning our journey all the way home. Yahweh is not only providing for us, he's not only guiding us, he's planning every single detail all the way home. David says, you've prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David sort of subtly is transitioning us out of the analogy of a sheep and a shepherd, I think. And now God is this host who is preparing a feast for us. And, and David's sort of marveling at the spread that's before him. Uh, David notes that, that the table is set in the very presence of his enemies. Again, I, I think it's probable David is, is being pursued at this point in his life. And he takes comfort in the fact that Yahweh's vindication is coming, where David is going to be seen to be the one in the right, and God blesses him and judges his enemies. And he's sort of getting ready for this feast. God is pampering him. <laughs> he says, you have anointed my head with oil. Um, that might sound gross to us. <laughs> like, why, why do I want my head rubbed with oil? 
Um, maybe if you've never taken a shower in your life, the idea of having a soothing head massage with oil might sound more appealing. I'm not sure. Um, but certainly to, to David at the time that he's writing, that was something that was very appealing. Um, and the idea is just the, the point that God is preparing David to enjoy this feast. Right? He's getting him ready so that he can just have the best time possible. And, and I think that applies you know, to us as Christians as well, that the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming. Right? Our feast is coming. The new earth is coming. The new Jerusalem is coming. And David is confident that God is doing everything to prepare him to enjoy that moment, right? That every trial that I'm going through, every difficult time I'm going through is to prepare me for eternity. My eternity is going to be better because of what God's doing in my life right now, right? When I get to heaven, I'm going to look back on this pain and say, thank you, Jesus. Man, I didn't get it then, (laughs) I didn't understand it then, but that was exactly what I needed. Like, that was, wow, thank you, Lord. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't choose it then. But we're going to see God's wisdom as we look back on our lives and see just how desperately we needed it. And again, uh, David's just going to celebrating his, his life not because it's easy, but because he trusts in God's sovereignty. Notice he says at the end of verse 5, my cup is overflowing. And it's not a little bit of blessing. It's overflowing blessing. Just completely overflowing. And, and we need to be able to say that. We need to be able to repeat that line in death and in life, in joy and in pain. My cup runneth over. I have so many blessings that I don't deserve. So many. I <laughs> say often, I think it's something we need to repeat in our hearts, but right, anything that we receive that's not hell is a grace that we don't deserve. Right? Even a trial is much better than the wrath of God that we deserve. David says, my cup runneth over. I'm thankful. I know that, that God is doing a good thing and again, you know, maybe, maybe we don't know where David is. Maybe he's out in the desert somewhere and it's hot and he's thirsty. And so he's preaching to himself. I mean, when you read through the Psalms, how often does a psalmist just like start preaching to himself? And he's like, soul, <laughs> soul, why are you downcast? Soul, thirst for God. Soul, rejoice in God. And he's saying, soul, your cup is running over with blessing. Sometimes, sometimes we've got to say something and say it to ourselves until we believe it. <laughs> sometimes as Christians, we don't believe it until we just start saying it. Sometimes our will, sometimes our mind, and I think Lewis hints to that, is stronger than our heart. Right? What do you do when you wake up in the morning and you don't want to pray? You don't want to read your Bible. Pray until you want to pray. You read your Bible until you want to read your Bible. So David's preaching to himself, saying, Yahweh is just filling up my cup with blessing. It's just overflowing. And it's as if David is just sort of looking into heaven and seeing that every circumstance that is happening to him is for his good. 
It's like this aching body is being massaged with oil, being embraced in the safety of God himself in full view of all his enemies. And this is not some sort of weird fantasy of some guy out in the desert. This is faith. This is David trusting in his shepherd that his shepherd is doing it all for his good. And that ought to just thrill us, right? That that Jesus is preparing me for his embrace. He's preparing me for an eternity of communion and love should thrill our hearts. And not only that, (laughs) notice the the last verse. We know that we're going to experience this goodness and this loving kindness as that it's pursuing us. Surely, the, the verb surely there, more often in Hebrew is translated only. It could probably go either way. But only goodness and only mercy, that's all God gives. God doesn't give anything but hesed to his people. He doesn't give anything but loyal, faithful love. And how much more must that be true for those of us who live this side of the cross and can read Romans 8, 32, that if he did not withhold from us his very son, how could he not also with him graciously give us all things? Impossible that the goodness of God would not find us. Right? And I love the, the verb that David uses here, pursue or follow me in some versions. It's, it's a really strong verb. It's the verb that Dave, David uses to describe dogs pursuing him and chasing him. And I think that's a great illustration because it's not like, you know, God's goodness is following us. But if we speed up a little bit too quickly or make kind of a quick turn that, that God's grace is going to lose our scent and, and actually not find us. Now, the, the goodness and mercy of God are right on our tails and they will not tire. They will pursue us until they find us. We will be overcome by them and they will have their way with us. God's chesed is constant. It's unwavering. Our hope is sure, and we will make it to God's house. The shepherd has never, ever lost a sheep. Never, nor will he. Jesus says in John 10, no one can snatch us out of his hand. It's impossible. We are safe in his grip, and we will experience God's goodness and his mercy all the way at every turn. He ends with that final phrase, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Kind of interesting Hebrew issue there with the verb dwell that could also be translated return. There's some scholarly debate as to whether uh, David is talking about going to uh, God's house or returning to Jerusalem to see Yahweh in the temple once more. At the end of the day, I, I think the application to us is the same that just as David trusted that God's goodness and God's mercy was going to pursue him until he was in God's presence, we have that same confidence. We have that same guarantee that God's grace, his mercy, his kindness is going to pursue us and overtake us and guarantee that we make it to heaven. In conclusion, the point is that, that God is pastoring us. He's shepherding us. And that means he always provides the best for us. That means he's always guiding us on the right path. That means he's planning our whole lives, pursuing us with his goodness until the end. And I'd like to take just the last few moments if you want to join me in John 14. 
as I said before, it's not, it's not allegorizing the text to say that our shepherd is Christ because he's the one who himself calls us, calls himself the good shepherd. But I think a lot of the, the truths that we see in Psalm 23 are reflected in the heart of Christ in John 14. So I just want to read the first six verses and just make two or three applications here. The disciples are troubled. They're just wrestling with this idea that Jesus says he's going to leave them. He's going to return to the Father. He says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How could we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I think there in verse 6, that it's a verse that, a lot of people sort of miss the main intention of the verse. We often use John fourteen six to preach the exclusivity of the gospel, that you can't be saved through Catholicism or Mormonism. And, and that's, that's probably a true application of the text. But when we look at the context of it, the purpose of John fourteen six is to comfort a weary soul. The purpose of John 14, 6 is to comfort the troubled hearts of the 11 true disciples of Christ. And to say, Catholicism doesn't save, kind of doesn't go with the context of John 14, 6. So, so what's happening? Well, Jesus, right, in, in verse 2 says, look, there's, my father has this house, this mansion, and there's lots of dwelling place. But I'm going, I'm going to the father through the cross so that you're going to have a place there. I'm, I'm dying on the cross in order to make a room in my father's house for you. And the truth is, I have to. I have to die. I have to leave you because I'm the only way. I'm the only truth. I'm your only life. There, there's no other way for you to have a room in my father's mansion. The only way is if I die. That's the only way you make it to heaven. And I think it just emphasizes the the same point that David is making, that that we have to trust then that when Jesus is doing something, it's because it is the only way. It's the only way to get us to heaven. That's how he operates. That's his heart, the heart of a shepherd who has the objecting, objective of getting us home so that he can rejoice over us and love us. Not too many years ago, but maybe, what, 10 years ago, uh, Silas was, was in the hospital for a couple of months. And I remember very distinctly this time because, you know, you're, you're always kind of visiting and, and then leaving him. And I think he's probably two or three at the time and, you know, just done didn't understand, you know, why I can't just stay there 24-7. And I remember so clearly on the day that he was finally um, allowed to leave the hospital that I go there and we're, we're hugging and we're so excited, like we're going to get to go home. And then 
you know, the doctor signs the discharge papers and I give him a hug and I was like, okay, I got to go get the car. And it's like, he just was so confused. Like, I thought we were excited. I thought we were going home. Like, why are you leaving me again? And he starts crying. Like, don't leave me. And, and I was just like, son, I can't get you home unless I go to the car. Like, there's no one else who can drive you home. Like, I got to leave you right now just for a second. Just trust me for one second. I'm going to go get the car and then I'm going to get you. I'm going to push in the car and we're driving home. And there's that sense, I think, here in John 14 that Jesus is saying, look, I have to leave you right now. I'm going to leave you with my spirit, but I got to leave you right now just for a little bit because this is the only way to get you home. This is the only way to love you at home. And, and now we're left here by ourselves and Jesus is in heaven. And we're like, well, why aren't you here with me? Like I'm going through this trial I'm going through this difficult time. It hurts. We feel abandoned. And we need to remember the heart of our shepherd. If he's left us, it's because this is the only way. This is the only way that you can be justified and sanctified and make it to heaven. If there were another way, he'd choose it. But this is the best world possible. If this isn't the best word possible, then God messed up. Then God failed. God doesn't fail. Our shepherd never makes a mistake. The question only is whether we trust him or not. Whether we trust that these trials are worth it. To see more of God's grace. To see more of his glory. We need sometimes even the sin that God uses in our life to grow in our hatred of sin, to grow to be more and more like him. Everything he's doing is to change us and make us like his son. Our response as a sheep is to trust. Our shepherd knows best, and I'm going to follow him until he takes me home. Let's pray. Oh, Father, our hearts are so weak and frail. Our faith is so short-sighted, so pathetic. We desperately need your spirit to, to grant us the faith to fix our eyes on Jesus and to trust that he is our good shepherd that the things that he provides us are the best things that we need. The green pasture and the quiet waters that our souls desperately need. And that the paths that he has placed us on are right paths. No matter what they might feel like, you know everything. Help us to trust in your sovereignty. Thank you for the promise that you will pursue us with your goodness until we are in your embrace. Thank you for Jesus, your son. We know it is only because he lived the perfect life we could not and died the death that we deserve and rose on the third day that we can become your children and be led 
by you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.